If you would take your copy of God's Word and open to 1 John chapter 5, 1 John chapter 5, you may have noticed in your bulletin this morning we're beginning a sermon series on the letters of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. Um, Actually, we're starting a new series in the afternoon too, so last week was New Song Sunday, this is New Series Sunday. Um, Anytime we embark on a new study or new book, it's probably worthwhile asking ourselves, why is it worth doing? Other than the obvious answer that it, well, this is in the Bible, so it's good for us, We can say specifically about John's letters that they will put us to the test of true faith. If you open your heart to this word, you are going to have some assurance. You're not going to walk away wondering whether or not you're born again. John says, there's ways you can know. Now the goal this morning is not going to be to dive into the details of the text. This morning I'd like for us to just have an overview of the book, to do a sort of uh, survey of it. Like I've said before, a book survey is maybe best described as, you know, taking an airplane ride over and just seeing the landscape down there without being able to observe a lot of details. Just get an overview and we'll spend a few months taking a slow walk through it. Oddly enough, that's why we're going to start toward the end in John, 1 John chapter 5. Because it's John's customary uh, pattern to include a purpose statement in the things that he writes. But John usually doesn't include that purpose statement until the end. Many of the books in the New Testament say up front what they're about. John holds that to the end. So for example, when John wrote his gospel... In the Gospel of John, it wasn't until chapter 20 that he gets around to making the purpose statement. At the end of the second to last chapter, listen to what John wrote in his Gospel in John chapter 20 as a purpose statement. John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, it says, And many other signs truly did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life through his name. So John wrote his gospel so that you would believe Jesus is the Messiah, God's Son, and that through believing in him, you would have eternal life. Now, look at what John says about why he's written this letter in 1 John chapter 5, verse 13. These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God that you might know that you have eternal life and so that you might believe on the name of the Son of God. Now there's a pretty clear parallel there, right? The difference being that John wrote his gospel for evangelistic reasons so that people would, would hear about Christ and believe in Christ and be saved. But he writes this letter to people. He says, well, you already believe in Jesus. So I'm writing to you who already believe in Jesus so that you might know or you might have confidence that you are saved. Or as he says, he's writing to those who believe so that they'll have assurance and then continue to believe. 
That's John's message throughout these letters. You can know. Well, see, he talks about others out there who say that they know. But John's going to give a test of true faith so that we can really know. Let's go to the Lord in prayer and then we'll talk about the book. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for this day. We thank you for the opportunity to be here in this place that we say is your house. And we ask, Lord, that you would look down on us as children of your family, citizens of your kingdom, and that you would just show us your love and your mercy and that you would use your Holy Spirit to open and illuminate our hearts so that those of us who have seen Jesus as Savior would have assurance of the salvation that comes through him and that those who have not seen Jesus as Savior would see their need of him. Ask, Lord, that you would please bless this reading and proclaiming of your word and give us an understanding of it. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Now maybe I'm just reverting back to my old newspaper reporter days, but it seems like the best way to do an overview of John's letters here is to ask the, all the W questions, right? The who, what, where, when, and why. And so the who in this letter is that the author is the Apostle John, although technically the letters are anonymous. They don't say who the letter writer is. The first letter, 1 John, is entirely anonymous. 2 and 3 John, those letters begin just by saying that they're written by, quote, the elder. However, there's a great deal of tradition and evidence, both outside of the text and inside of the text, that supports the case that this really is written by the Apostle John. Well, how can we be sure? Well, first off, the external evidence is considerable. Early Christian writers like Papias or Eusebius or Irenaeus, all of them writing before 200 AD, claim John to be the author of these letters. Papias is actually a special case because of that man. We know that he was born about 60 AD, uh, about 30 years after the death of G- and burial and resurrection of Jesus. And he claims to have known the Apostle John personally. He said that these letters of 1st through 3rd John were written as the Apostle was an old man, the last surviving Apostle, And that fits the internal evidence that we read in the text. The writer refers to himself, as I said, as as the elder, which in this case may not just mean an elder of the church, but also older in age. The age of the writer comes through throughout the text because he, he addresses his readers lovingly as my little children nine different times. More importantly, even though that tradition is on the outside of Scripture, the internal evidence would also lead us to conclude that this is John the Apostle. Look at what the writer says about himself at the beginning of the letter. Look at 1 John chapter 1. He opens the letter by saying, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled of the word of life, 
For the life was manifested and we have seen it and bear witness and show unto you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested unto us. That which we have seen and heard declare we unto you that you also may have fellowship with us and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. The writer here says, He's an eyewitness to the life and ministry of Jesus. He says, look, I've heard him. I've seen him. I've touched him. I've not told you anything other than what I've seen and what I've heard. And so that tells us first off, this is very likely one of the apostles. But then when we read the letter, an interesting thing happens because the writer doesn't really tell us a great deal about the ministry of Jesus in this letter. He doesn't tell us in this letter about seeing and hearing and and touching him, any of those specific occasions. This document is very theological, not historical, and that is, it's, it's focused on doctrine, not telling stories of what's been seen and heard and felt. So that would make us immediately think, well, when he tells us that he's, he, say, he said to us about what he's seen and heard and felt, he must have written something else also that include those. And when we examine the Gospel of John, we'll find there's a lot of parallels between this letter and that Gospel. It uses the same kind of language. It uses the same kind of sentence structure. You actually saw that already in the comparison of those, those purpose statements. You saw how, how parallel those purpose statements are. In addition, while the gospel tells the story of, of Jesus, and this letter lays out the doctrine of Jesus, both of them do it in the same way through contrasts. Contrasts like, well, there's, there's life and there's death and there's truth and there's falsehood, there's light, and there's darkness, there's love, and there's hate. There's the children of God, and there's the children of the devil. There's absolutely no gray area in between those positions in this letter. And both present Jesus in the same terms. For example, you know John's gospel. John's gospel begins talking about Jesus as the word, right? In the beginning, was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now look at how this letter begins. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard and we've seen with our eyes, which we've looked upon and our hands have handled, of the Word of life. There's such parallels between the Gospel of John and these three letters that there's every reason to believe they're written by the same person. In fact, that John is the writer of the gospel that carries his name, and these letters are also by him, that's a good explanation of why these letters are anonymous. That's what he did in the gospels, right? You go back to John's gospel, you don't see him talking about himself in the sense of naming himself. The way that John referred to himself through his gospels is by saying, well, it was that disciple who Jesus loved. And even that wasn't to brag. It was as if to say, the only thing in my life that's worth knowing about me is that Jesus loved me. So since this is the Apostle John writing, you, you know him, right? His readers knew him. They would have known and they could have thought about who this letter came from. This is, 
This is the younger brother of James who lived in Galilee, who, who worked in his father Zebedee's fishing business. They were apparently more successful or more, more wealthy than Peter and Andrew who were also fishermen because J- John and James are described as having servants that they could call on to help for the work. John had also apparently been a disciple of John the Baptist. But when the Baptist pointed to Jesus and said, there's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, John was ready to leave following John the Baptist and start following Jesus as his rabbi. And so James and John left their father's fishing business, walked untold miles with Jesus over three years. They would have seen miracles. They would have heard him him teach and preach. They would have learned directly from the Savior. John was probably in his early to mid-teens when he started following Jesus. And though late in his life, John's going to be known as the Apostle of Love, that's not how he started. It is evidence that, evident that he and James were both hotheads. In Mark chapter 9, it tells of how John once came to Jesus and said, we saw someone ministering in your name, but since he wasn't walking with us, we told him to stop it and shut up. At one point, when they felt insulted by a certain Samaritan village, John and James asked Jesus, can we rain fire down on them like Elijah did? It's probably for this reason that Jesus began calling James and John Boanerges, or the sons of thunder. What they made of that nickname that Jesus gave to them, I don't know. Except to say that they, they once also angered all the other apostles by sending their mother to Jesus and having their mother ask Jesus, can my boys sit on your right hand and your left hand when you come into the kingdom? For all of his ambition and arrogance and anger, the one thing we can say about John is is he aged well. As all believers should, John showed the, the character of being slowly conformed to Christ. He was one of the three apostles that were in the the inner circle of Jesus' disciples. He was able to go up the Mount of Transfiguration and see the glory of Jesus start to, to shine through his human flesh. When he calls Jesus the light, he saw that light. It's John who wrote about the the humility of Jesus washing the disciples' feet. It was John who was reclined against Jesus at the Last Supper. He probably heard that real human heart beating in the chest of Jesus. And it was only John, not any of the others. Apparently only John was brave enough to follow Jesus all the way to the cross It might be that he felt unthreatened because he was so young. And when he was there, the dying Savior asked John to take care of his mother Mary. Later on in Acts, as John is conformed to the character of Christ and preaches the gospel of Jesus, John returns to Samaria 
Remember the place where he said, can we rain fire down on them like Elijah did? The same place he wanted to call fire down on, now he goes to an axe and he preaches the gospel of Jesus and proclaims they can have eternal life. He also learned about the cost of faithfulness to Christ. When in Acts chapter 12, one of the sons of thunder was silenced. His older brother James was executed by the sword on the command of King Herod. That's who's writing this letter. And it helps if we remember that as we read it. Suffice it to say, John tells us about the defining attributes of the Christian life. And as he's doing that, it's not theoretical. It's coming from someone who has the, the wisdom of experience. He's, he's lived following Jesus. So that's the who. Let's talk about the where for a moment. The letter is almost certainly written in or near the city of Ephesus. Again, the external witness we have to John the Apostle's later life is helpful for us. The tradition of the early church fathers tells us that in his old age, John came to Ephesus. It's over on the the western edge of Asia Minor, and he remained there until the time of the Roman emperor Trajan, which would have been right at the end of the first century. They all paint a picture of a loving old apostle who was still unyielding in his dedication to the truth of Christ. You know, we take those early writers as recording good history, even though we don't consider their writings to be inspired or they are generally reliable. One of the writers tells some personal stories about John. And one of, the, one of the stories he writes about John, he says that John was bold enough in his old age to enter into this hidden camp of a group of violent robbers because he knew one of those men had proclaimed faith in Christ earlier in his life. And John went in there and with unyielding zeal and, and compassionate concern led that man to repentance and out of the camp, he, he robbed the robbers of a robber. This documentation of John in Ephesus, it fits the internal evidence of Scripture. We know that Revelation is written by the Apostle John. According to Revelation 1.9, while he was exiled to the island of Patmos for the crime of preaching the gospel. Patmos is located out in the Aegean Sea, just about 50 miles southwest of Ephesus. In fact, the cities of the seven churches of Asia Minor to which John wrote the book of Revelation, one of them was Ephesus, and they would have all been within his sphere of influence as he ministered there for years. In short, there's no reason to question the long-standing belief that John was located near Ephesus when he wrote these letters, and that they are written to the churches and individuals that are in that area who would have known John well. Second and third John are a little bit different. Second John is addressed to the elect lady and her children, which I'm going to argue is to a church and its members, while third John is addressed directly to a man named Gaius and addresses issues in a church. We'll talk more about those later in the series when we get there. 
So we've seen who is the Apostle John, where is, is in or around the city of Ephesus, the when, First John was probably written between about 90 and 95 AD. Setting a date on these letters is a bit of a, a technical study, and believe me when I say you don't want me to get into all of it this morning. It involves determining the order that John wrote all of his letters and the gospel and revelation and um, comparing that to the details we know of, of history, like about those cities in Revelation. Instead of going through all of it, let me just give you what I think is the most likely answer. It reminds me of my, my newspaper days. Anytime we were writing something and it got into too much detail, we had a saying, it was like, we don't need to hear the labor pains, just show us the baby. Right? All the evidence points to John being the last living apostle and everything in the New Testament was already written before John ever put pen to paper. If you put all of the New Testament books on a, on a timeline based on when they were written, all of John's five books would be the last ones. The Gospel of John was probably written from 85 to 90 AD, somewhere in there. John's letters, written about 90 to 95 AD. All three of these roughly at the same time, although we, we have to be honest and say we don't know the order, we call them first, second, and third because we have to identify them some way, but they weren't necessarily written in that order. And then he was banished to Patmos and wrote Revelation probably about 96 or 97 AD. Now think about this for a moment. If, if Jesus was crucified about 30 AD, which I, I think is correct, then there is another 55 to 60 years before John writes his gospel then several more years before these letters get written. Very likely, John, who refers to himself as the elder, is in his mid-80s by the time these letters are written, and he's pushing 90 by the time he writes Revelation. And we still have two questions to answer, the why and the what, but we're going to take them together because... It's only by looking at what John says that we understand why John was writing. So the why and the what, I would say John wrote these letters to correct dangerous errors within the churches. Let's just connect some dots for a moment. Turn to Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter 20. We know that the church at Ephesus was not founded by the Apostle John. The church at Ephesus was started by the Apostle Paul as he went out on his missionary journeys in Asia Minor. He stayed in Ephesus for about three years preaching the gospel. If you recall in Acts chapter 19, it describes that it had created such an impact in the city that the silversmiths in Ephesus started a citywide riot. Now in Acts chapter 20, it's roughly 60 AD at this point. Paul is on his final trip to Jerusalem where he's going to be arrested and he knows it. And he, he had appointed several elders over the church at Ephesus and he wanted to see them, but he didn't want to get stopped in the city because he knows if he goes to Ephesus, he's not going to be able to leave quickly. And so look at verses 16 and 17 in Acts 20. 
He called for the Ephesian elders to meet him at the port in Miletus. So about 60 AD, Paul is addressing here the, the leadership of the church at Ephesus for a final time. Look down at verse 28 and see what he says. Take heed therefore unto yourselves and to all the flock over which the Holy Ghost has made you overseers to feed the church of God, which he has purchased with his own blood. For this I know that after my departing shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock. So Paul's pleaded with them to beware because there were going to be wolves that enter in from the outside, right? Outside influences are going to try to tear the church apart. But that's not all. Verse 30. Also, of your own selves shall men arise, speaking perverse things, to draw away disciples after them. Therefore watch and remember that by the space of three years, I cease not to warn everyone night and day with tears. So Paul says from among the leadership at Ephesus, He fully expected that some of them were going to stray from the truth. He says they're going to start speaking perverse things or literally crooked things, twisted things. So in addition to those savage wolves that are going to threaten the church from the outside, there would be a a twisting of truth that starts to happen from the inside. And the goal, he says, is they're going to do this and they're going to try to draw away disciples. Now later on, we know in the pastoral epistles, where did, where did Paul send Timothy? He, he sent Timothy to Ephesus. And he explains why in 1 Timothy 1.3. He says, in 1 Timothy 1.3, when I went to Macedonia, I urged you to remain in Ephesus so that you would instruct certain people that they were to teach no other doctrine." And so if that's around 60 AD, and now John is at Ephesus writing somewhere between 90 and 95, we've got about 30 years have passed from the time that Paul made that warning. And we find these letters are being written because what Paul said was going to happen had started to happen. Paul said false teachers would arise from inside the church speaking perverse things or twisted things, drawing disciples away. Now listen to John in 1 John 2, chapter, uh, chapter 2, verse 26. These things have I written unto you concerning them that seduce you. In chapter 4, verse 1, he says, Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets are gone out into the world. Listen, John did not sit down to write a letter to confirm believers' faith for no reason. There was a major movement underway to to undermine the truth of the gospel and the message of Jesus. It was a crusade of deception that was being launched from inside the church at Ephesus. Now the exact nature of that seduction and that, that seductive teaching isn't isn't described by John in explicit terms. He doesn't ever say, this is what they're saying and here's why it's wrong. But we can reason it out from the things that he does say. 
Given what we know in history and what John says, it's not difficult to grasp. Here's a, here's a good comparison. Have you ever listened to somebody on the phone and you've heard one side of the conversation and by hearing one side of the conversation, you pretty well figured out the rest of it? So, you know, Joy gets off the phone, starts telling me the conversation. I'm like, yeah, I think I got it. We can do that with John. We can do that with these letters. After reading these letters, it seems evident The error is an early version of what is called Gnosticism. If you're taking notes, that starts with a G. G G-N-O-S-T-I-C-I-S-M. It comes from the Greek word gnosko, which means to know. Now, it's interesting to me that in order to combat this error, John uses that word know like 39 times in this letter. In 1 John 2, verse 3, Hereby we know that we know him if we keep his commandments. In chapter 2, verse 4, he says, He that says I know him and doesn't keep his commandments is a liar. The next verse, Hereby we know that we're in him. In chapter 2, verse 21, I've not written to you because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it. In chapter 2, verse 29, if you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone that does righteousness is born of him. It's not by accident that he uses that word no so many times. This error of Gnosticism, which claimed to essentially know special truths or secret truths, was actually a blending of Greek philosophy with Christianity. And so there were some pretty strange things that the Gnostics claimed to know. They thought that the physical world was all evil and the spiritual world was entirely good. And so what that means in Christian terms is, well, the Son of God could interact with the world for good, but he could only do that as a spirit. He wasn't real. Right? If, if all of the physical realm is evil, then the Son of God could never come in physical flesh. Now, I actually suspect that they tried to use John's own gospel to back up their weird ideas. Since John's gospel is very clear that Jesus is God, they had no problem with that, right? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. But they ignored the part about, well, the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. Listen, I think this is the reason why John opens this letter with, I've heard him, I've seen him, I've touched him. If Jesus was only a spirit, if he just looked like a man, then what does that do for the cross? How... How does he shed his blood as an atonement for our sins if he didn't have a body and he didn't have blood? One of these Gnostics, and and historically we know his name was Serenthus, he taught that Jesus and Christ are two different beings. He taught that Jesus was a man, but Christ is the spirit. Now, just imagine how bizarre this is. He said when Jesus was baptized, the Spirit of Christ came onto him. And so through his ministry, he was Jesus Christ. But then the Christ Spirit left him just before the crucifixion. 
How awful would that have been? I mean, imagine for Jesus of Nazareth, if he was just a regular guy who went and submitted to John's baptism and suddenly gets possessed by the Christ spirit and then wakes up three years later as he's being crucified. Listen, John doesn't bother to go in and identify all of that false teaching. His readers knew that false teaching. Instead, John just obliterates it, right? I heard him, I saw him, I touched him. In chapter 4, 1 John 4, verses 2 and 3, says, Hereby know ye the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that confesses not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is not of God. And this is that spirit of Antichrist, which you have heard that it should come and even now already is in this world. John's saying, look, you want to you teach that all the physical world is evil and all the spiritual world is good? Well, not every spirit is good. If you say that Jesus has not come in the flesh, you are an Antichrist. You are opposed to the Messiah. He does the same thing in, in 2 John, verse 7. 2 John, verse 7, he says, For many deceivers are entered into the world who confess not that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. This is a deceiver and an antichrist. Denying the humanity of Jesus is heresy. Denying that Jesus Christ is a real man is as much heresy as denying that Jesus Christ is truly God. Both are true. Both are vital. John's not going to put up with that kind of false teaching or with the implications of that false teaching. He says what you believe about Jesus matters. And because these Gnostics and their strange ideas that the Spirit's always good and the physical realm's always evil, they decided that that means what you do in your body doesn't actually matter. They said God doesn't care about the physical you. He only cares about the spiritual you. That's all that counts. And so if there's some physical sin that you're committing, don't worry about it. It's no big deal. And so John says in chapter 2, verse 1, My little children, these things I write unto you that you sin not. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He says in chapter 3, verse 6, Whoever abides in him sins not, and whoever sins has not seen him or known him. John's going to have a lot to say about the way that we live. Like it or not, he is going to insist that morality matters. Sin matters. It's destructive. He says those who are born of God will not abide in. They will not live in sin. That's of the devil. And you have to live a holy life. He knows, look, he knows that you're not perfect. He says, if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. But he knows you need Jesus every day. If you're not going to live in holiness, you have good reason to question whether or not you've got Jesus at all. And so John writes in chapter 3, verse 6, Little children, let no man deceive you. He that does righteousness is righteous. 
Okay, one more thing, and then we'll close. John says what you believe about Jesus matters. He says how you behave yourself matters. The third test, he's going to say how you treat others matters. It seems like false teaching always leads to arrogance. It happens when you see someone wander from Scripture and embrace some new enlightened truth. It creates a sense of spiritual arrogance. The enlightened consider themselves uh, above the unenlightened. They simply can't be bothered with them. But if what you believe about Jesus matters and how you behave yourself matters, then how you treat others also matters, no matter how enlightened you claim to be. So John says in chapter 2, Verse 9, he that says he's in the light and hates his brother is in darkness even until now. This love for your brothers and sisters in Christ is the third test of authentic faith. And that comes straight from Jesus, not from John, right? Jesus says, by this shall all men know that you're my disciples if you love one another. John's just going to take that truth and he's going to, to hammer home the implications of it. Look at chapter 3, verse 14. Now we know we have passed from death unto life because we love the brethren. He that loves not his brother abides in death. Chapter 4, verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another for love is of God and everyone that loves is born of God and knows God. So those are going to be the tests of authentic faith. What do you believe about Jesus? How do you behave in your life? Do you really love other believers? I want you to try to see them as you read through 1 John. And I'm going to challenge you to take this little five-chapter letter and read through it at least once or twice a week during this series. It'll do you good. You'll find that the book is... It's not structured quite the way that like Paul's letters are. You know, I love Paul. If, if, if he had written this letter, he would have just moved from one point to another. If, if Paul was doing this, there would have been this quick introductory greeting followed by maybe a prayer and then chapter one, the test of true faith. Chapter two, the, the test of life. Chapter three, the test of love. But John's not like that. Read it, understanding that John is now the aged apostle who desperately loves his people and is fiercely opposed to those who are trying to interfere with the faith of those people who he loves. And so through these five chapters, he applies those three tests, those same ones, over and over again. It's it's almost, when you read 1 John, it's almost like having a, a song that's playing on repeat. He just keeps coming back to the same three things. It's not a difficult letter to understand, but it is a letter that will flat beat you up. In fact, it is so simple that every student of New Testament Greek begins their personal translation journey with 1 John. But at the same time, the eloquent simplicity of it will leave you shaken. He doesn't try to define all of the false teaching. He just asserts truth. And he doesn't give any middle ground. There is light or dark. There's life or death. There's the children of God or the children of Satan. And there's no in between. 
So that now, about 20 centuries later, we're dealing with our own Gnostics that claim how much they know and how much you don't know. John's going to say, don't, don't listen to that. You can know if you're in Christ. There's ways to know. Do you want to know? Because no doubt there are some here among us that are asking themselves or will soon be asking themselves, well, am I really saved? How can I know? That's not a question that I can answer. The pastor can't tell you that you're saved. Not, not truly, although there are some folks who will walk you through a prayer like it's a magic incantation, say, walk down this aisle, or you, you, you raised your hand, right? You said it so you're saved. You did this so you're saved. John's going to tell us that is no way to have assurance of salvation. How can I know that I'm saved? In these letters, John's simply going to ask the same three questions over and over again in different ways. What do you believe about Jesus? How do you live for Jesus? Are you showing love like Jesus? So I challenge you to read through 1 John at least once or twice a week while we go through this series and be ready to study it together.